Surprise! You thought you had to wait another week for a new episode. Well, guess what? We're coming at you with a very special mini episode that's all about the hosts behind the mics. Bob, Aaron, and I are each going to take the hot seat over the next few weeks and interview each other. We hope you'll get to know each of us a little bit more and why we even started this podcast in the first place. So please enjoy. Aaron Walter, welcome to Reconsidering. Hi, Aaron. Hey. So this is another one of our little hot take mini episodes about getting to know the hosts. Yeah. So there's one about each one of us. And we're going to start with the lightning round like we do with our guests. I've written these specifically for you. And then we'll jump into some questions. So Meredith and I are going to ask you some questions. You ready to play? I'm ready. Hit me. Okay, here we go. They start out easy and then they get a little tricky. But you know the routine. Okay, here we go. Paper or plastic? Paper. Morning or night? Morning. Book or e-reader? Neither. Audiobook. Hmm. Coffee shop or library? Coffee shop. Suitcase or backpack? Duffel bag. You're going off script a little bit here. I man. am messing with you. <laughs> Airbnb or hotel? Airbnb. New York City or Los Angeles? Oh, man, I like both. I'll say New York. Quiet movie at home or night on the town? Quiet movie at home. Alone or together? Together. Netflix or YouTube? YouTube every day, all day. Twitter or Instagram? Probably neither, but if I had to choose of the two, I'd say Twitter. Video or still? Hmm, it depends on the context. Uh, still. Color or black and white? Color. Leaders or artists? Artists. Walt Disney or Steve Jobs? Walt Disney. Pixar or Miyazaki? Pixar. Bach or The Beatles? The Beatles. Van Gogh or Michelangelo? I'm going to say Michelangelo. That dude was complex. Einstein or Shakespeare? Einstein. Ali or Jordan? Muhammad Ali, all the way. Kermit or Bugs? Kermit. Dogs or cats? I'm about to get a puppy, so I'm going to say dogs. Cathedrals or castles? Cathedrals. NGOs or government agencies? NGOs. Fishing or farming? Farming. Philosophy or religion? Philosophy. Beauty or wisdom? Beauty. Hmm. Nice. Thanks for playing. Yeah, that's fun. It's fun to be on the other side of that. Yeah, hopefully these make you think a little bit. few unexpected answers in there. Bach or the Beatles? The Beatles? I don't, I don't know about that. Kermit, Kermit or Bugs? <laughs> I don't know. Okay, I was with you on Ali. So good stuff. So, Aaron, we'll just get into the first question here. So, the show was really your idea. You know, you reached out to me, kind of kicked the whole thing off. Can you tell me a little bit what the inspiration and origin was for the show? I don't really feel like it's my idea. I feel like it's all of us kind of tuning into the same radio station. So, I don't really feel a sense of ownership of an idea. I feel like a participant in a reconsidering process. I also feel like it's just the human condition. You know, at some point we're all kind of wondering, what does it all mean? Am I headed in the right direction? Is there something bigger I've not yet discovered? What truth is in my life and what are the truths I've yet to discover? So the idea with the show is really, you know, the pursuit to the answers to those questions. And 
What I love about podcasts is it's just an excuse to go talk to people who know more than I do. And that includes you two. It's, you know, being in the situation where we get to talk regularly about some really tough topics. Sometimes we're a little vulnerable. And I feel like a lot of times day to day, we're kind of like living life, going to the grocery store, or maybe dropping kids off at school, et cetera. You know, small talk, chit chat and whatnot. But I want to know, like, how does this life thing work? And I want to have deeper conversations. And so the podcast creates opportunities for that. And in the course of learning, like, let's all learn together. Let's listen. And by making this a public conversation, I'm hoping that people participate and ask questions and push us in new territory as well. Aaron, a lot of people probably know who you are, but maybe some don't. You've had a really interesting background, and I think one that I personally didn't know a ton about. There's things that I just found out about you, like that you were once a professor. So tell us, like, what has your journey looked like? Like, where are you now, and how did you get here? Yeah, it's sort of a weird non sequitur, really. When I was younger, I was really focused on art and the pursuit of the arts and trying to become an artist. My undergrad and graduate degrees are in painting and drawing. And I just felt this great sense of certainty that art was how I would find meaning and, and maybe like do something that was of interest to the world. And along the way, I kind of became a little disenchanted with the art world and what it would take to be part of that conversation. Accidentally discovered, I think just by the time that I was born in the 70s, which puts me, if you're playing along at home, in my late 40s. You know, being born at that time, it positioned me to discover the web and computers and technology, and that became a big part of my life. So I shifted from the arts to technology, but brought that creative thinking to it. And because I had discovered computers and programming and video editing and, you know, animation and things, while being an artist... I was asked in graduate school, like, could you teach other people to do this? And so that was kind of another key piece of my life, which is I like to learn and explore new topics, but I find that I have to teach people. Like, that's a core part of my learning process is that I don't quite take things on board until I've boiled it down into a package that other people can understand. That's how I get mastery. And as I've gotten older, I find that that's also how I've, I get connection with other people. So teaching has been, was a thing that I did for a little over a decade in the U.S., a bit in Europe as well. And that was great. Then I found my way into like the technology world. I joined MailChimp very early, I was the fourth person hired there. And it was like creativity, like painting and playing chess simultaneously. Fast forwarding to today, I've kind of recently had another reconsidering moment where after being in the technology world for a dozen years or more, kind of wondering like, hey, are we headed in the right direction? We had these ideals in creating the web and software products, like it would empower people and make lives better. And I think we've all kind of collectively realized that technology has also got some really negative sharp edges to it. It's affected our elections, it's affected our society, it's affected our public discourse in often very negative ways. And that caused me to kind of reconsider a career in technology, like how could I 
do something that is for the greater good. And I recently joined an NGO. Bob's question kind of alluded to this. The NGO is called Resolve to Save Lives. It was founded by Dr. Tom Frieden, who used to be Barack Obama's head of the CDC. And so I've been working on epidemic preparedness and technology and design plays a role there. So still figuring it out as I go along. What I like about the beginning part of your answer there, I liked all your answer, but the beginning part was it really echoed some of the stuff that we'd heard in some of our other interviews. So when we talked to Maria Giadis, she talked about finding your superpower and then being able to play that superpower into different contexts. And it seems to me that your superpower is teaching. You know, you're incredibly empathetic. You have a way of explaining things that make them approachable and understandable for others. So it seems to me like you found a lot of different ways to teach, whether that was in a formal setting as a professor, your work at Envision was about teaching, your writing is about teaching, your podcasting is about teaching. And then also it brought in some of the stuff that Koshik Ponchal shared with us about creating artifacts as a way to learn. And that it was just kind of virtual cycle of I will try things, I will put them out in the world, I will get connected to others, and I will just grow the ideas. And it's not about the artifact itself. It's not about celebrating the artifact. It's seeing the artifact as part of this larger process of learning. It seems like the way you talked about teaching, that teaching is your way of learning. I really liked how you were sort of pointing to some of the different themes that we've already been learning about together just here on season one. What's really interesting is that we're all learning about how to do this podcast together, you know, what people are interested in, what we're interested in. What have you learned so far? I've learned some really great stuff. I don't think we caught it on tape, but in our conversation with Judy Wirt, which may or may not be out when you're listening to this, but she said something that really resonated with me. I was feeling a bit burnt out, especially like with the pandemic and working on the pandemic. My day job was pandemic response. And when I wasn't in my day job, I was dealing with the pandemic and my kids being home from school and the uncertainty of it all that kind of has been a burden for the world, for all humanity. And she said, rest is an activity that really resonates with me because I'm a doer. I want to like be doing things all the time. It's one of my superpowers, but it is also my kryptonite is that I just don't stop. And then I deplete all of my battery and it means I can't do more. I can't do good work. I can't be the best husband or father that I can be. I can't be the best co-host of a podcast. Can't do anything well if I just deplete my battery, which is what I've done for a very long time. And the idea that rest in my mind, my mental model is that it's slacking off, it's not active, it's not productive. But hearing her say rest is an activity, it's like a truth that I knew, but I just didn't accept that, yeah, I could sleep a little bit longer. And yes, I don't have to do anything this morning that's productive, that you know checks something off my to-do list. And that's okay. That one was a particularly profound thing for me because it's something I'm still, still working on. It's interesting that you talk about you know searching for answers and trying to figure out there's a lot of kind of trying to figure out meaning of life and you know not everybody has that many people do but not everyone does and it often seems to me that that's sort of connected with this drive to be productive you know that the productivity is a it's a different form of the searching I'm wondering if there's something in your background or your childhood something to which you would attribute that searching 
gene, if you will, or if you think it's just the way you're wired? I do think it's the way I'm wired, but there is a history. In high school, I was pretty religious and I almost became a Catholic priest. I thought about it very hard. The priest that was very close to our family, our family house, the backyard was the Catholic church. My mom was the director of religious education. So like when the bishop came to town to visit, he would come over to our house for dinner. And this is in Iowa? This was in Iowa, yeah. Where in Iowa? A tiny little town called Creston. There's 8,000 people. So it's a pretty like, small view of the world where I was. And a pretty small church. It would be called a church because it's not a cathedral. It's like it's just a right. Catholic church and a few hundred parishioners or so. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, okay. But I, I realized at a certain point that I was mostly interested in like the travel opportunities, not actually <laughs> the, the real pursuit of deep religious insights. But I think I would describe my my human experience as like almost awake, but not fully awake. And I've often wondered, like, I know there's something else, but what is it? Like, what could it be? What does the examined life look like? And then there are times where I feel like for a moment I understand maybe it's not a thing that you find. Maybe it's already there. So I think that is the crux of my search, you know, reconsidering like where life could go and what it could be about is that maybe there's something more. Maybe it's already here. And how do I connect with it? What was your journey like coming from Creston, small town Iowa, to now you live in Athens, Georgia? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. So I live in a college town. People might know Athens, Georgia for REM. Maybe if you're a little younger, you might know of Montreal. Kevin Barnes is my neighbor, lives around the street. The B-52s. Can't forget the B-52s. B-52s, of course. Yeah. Once went to a party at the Love Shack. Yeah. That's pretty cool. I'm going to start saying it again. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Ten roof rusted. All right. Yeah, so I left Iowa to go, well, I left small town Iowa to go to the University of Iowa, which was only three hours away, but it felt like another universe. And it just blew my mental understanding of the world into another stratosphere. It was a really positive experience and it was very inspiring. So I was studying art and I got exposure to some really amazing famous artists, hung out with like Bryce Marden, Donald Batchelor, and some really cool people. And I went to New York by myself when I was, I think I was 21. I drove to Chicago, stayed at my cousin's house, and flew to New York by myself. And it was a really transformative experience to just go from like Iowa to like, this is the place that you've heard about where so many amazing people have been. And to just experience that on my own, to be alone and feel like competent, like, oh, I could totally do this. It was both scary and totally mundane at the same time. It was like fueling this feeling of like, I'm capable of more. I had a few other experiences, formative experiences as a kid where like one, I was selected to be a page at the Iowa State Capitol. And so I actually, I skipped half of my junior year in high school. And I worked a 40-hour-a-week job. I got paid. I lived at my uncle's house, but I you know, didn't see him that much. And I commuted to work. I put on a suit. I worked with, you know, in the House of Representatives, got to have breakfast with the governor. And that was like also a formative experience of like, I could do more. There's more that's possible. So those little glimpses in those early years helped me see that 
I could do more. And so I went to grad school in Philadelphia. And ultimately, the reason why I'm in Athens, Georgia is about a girl, my wife, Jamie. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, Not uh, just a girl, your wife, Jamie. Yeah, she's much more than a girl. The girl. I bet she's <laughs> glad you didn't become a priest. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> Me too. Um, but I, I was going to move to New York after grad school. But I felt like, you know, it doesn't really, doesn't fit, doesn't feel like the right place for me. And Jamie was not going to go to New York. And she was thinking, like, what's next? And Athens was on the short list. And I was just ready for a change. And I came here 21 years ago. I'd never been to the South. I didn't know what the South was like. My first time in the South, not counting going to Disney World, was in a U-Haul. And I just haven't left. It just feels really, it feels really good here. I really enjoy it. It's a lovely town, Athens, Georgia. Feels like an interesting balance. As you were talking, I was trying to imagine how you integrated some of the small town upbringing from Iowa with the big city stuff from New York. And, you know, you're really kind of at polar sides of the spectrum when we think about the American cultural experience, which we often think of as divided. But it seems like here in your own life, you've been able to somehow integrate those things. And it feels like Athens which is aptly named apparently in your at least in your case that you know you've kind of arrived at this amazing cultural center where you have some of the small town you know maybe you could talk a little about your homestead there there's a big emphasis on self-sufficiency but there's also probably a certain big town feel and you worked in Atlanta and you worked for Mailchimp and through the internet you're connected to all the media and power centers of the world really or at least the country so it seems like it's a, you found a really interesting way of integrating these different places from your upbringing and your your worldliness. Yeah, and I'd like to say it was like all part of some calculated plan, but I think it was like accident slash instinct of like what I need. I knew that New York felt too anonymous, that I needed familiarity. I needed to know people and like encounter people and have them like know who I am. My wife feels the same way. But where I live is within walking distance of everything we need. You know, a a lovely little grocery store that's kind of like a Whole Foods, great chocolate shop, bookshop. Just this morning, my wife and I and our two kids, we walked to the bakery, which is like an amazing bakery. Got some, uh, an almond croissant, chocolate croissant, sat down and met some random people who had some cool golden retrievers. And it's a good quality of life, like familiarity. But if you drive just an hour away, you can be at the busiest airport in the world and you can get a nonstop flight to Hawaii, to Tokyo, like you can go anywhere. And I love that. You know, it's like an hour and a half flight to New York City. You have the best of both worlds. Yeah. And that's just a great fit for me. I like uh, the insight there about what you consider to be essential, essential stores you can get to. So we got to a grocery store, a chocolatier and a bookstore. Yeah, that's pretty. It's pretty good. <laughs> like, what else do you need, really? Oh, in the bakery, I suppose. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it seems like Athens is a really great fit for you, Aaron. I mean, kind of envious, actually. It seems like you've sort of figured out how to thread the needle there. There's more to your life in Athens, though, than we've talked about so far. You know, you've adopted two young African American boys. And although this is a podcast, I can assure our listeners that you do not look like you have much African-American ancestry. I I am. I'm Whitey McWhitester. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You look like you just stepped out of Finland or something. Mm -hmm. Um, And as you mentioned, like you're living in the Deep South. This is a complicated choice you've made. 
and I know you're very thoughtful about it. So I'm wondering if you could just share a little bit with us about how you and your wife came to that really, you know, significant life-changing decision. Yeah. My wife, Jamie, always knew that she wanted to adopt since she was very young. She had that sense of clarity. I didn't necessarily have that clarity, but when we started to explore the idea, it just felt obvious is the way that I would describe it. Like, yes, of course, that would happen. And as we thought about it, and we got very deep into the research and the process, we had a conversation with a social worker, someone at an adoption agency at one point, and she said, statistically, African-American boys are the least likely to be placed in a home. And that really resonated with Jamie and I in a very um, sort of feel emotional just even thinking about that. It feels unfair, like an injustice, kind of the history of our country. And I also, like at the time, felt like so Barack Obama had been elected president and his mom like was white. And it was like a little signal to us like, hey, maybe the world could accept our family, could accept, you know, who we could be together. So we have two African-American boys, both born in the South, and it is a really complicated situation, like the history of where we live. It's hard, you know? I once felt confident, like, yes, we can do this. We can give our kids everything they need. And then there are times where I feel like, I can't, like, I don't have it. I don't have the history. I don't have the shared experience. And so we build mechanisms into our lives, you know, create opportunities for our kids to learn from black men and black families. We have a big family group, an adoption group of kids who are growing up in multiracial families. And some of them are adopted. Some of them, like there's a, a black father and maybe a white mother or, you know, some sort of multiracial component to their family. And that normalizes things for our, our kids of like, hey, families can look lots of different ways. And it also creates a support system when the inevitable, really complicated things pop up where, you know, at one point we had a kid kind of making up an origin story for one of our boys because he was just trying to figure us out. Like, wait, you know, here's how you came to be and here's what happened with your birth family and so forth. So it is complicated sometimes, but I will say, I feel like, especially where the United States is right now, we are becoming more pluralistic, more diverse, more welcoming. It might not feel like that. The reason why it probably doesn't feel like that for some people is that we're going through this backlash to the change. And so I feel it and I see it. I see families that look like ours. I see people not struggling so much to figure us out. Like it's not quite as odd. And that's encouraging to me that, you know, we can be a blended family and people can accept us. I look forward to hearing more about this you know, as life goes on and, you know, as you raise them, it's going to be really interesting to hear what you're doing and how you're doing it. And I think a lot of people are going to resonate with that. Yeah. I was just reflecting on how blessed all of you are to have each other. I, you know, I'm adopted myself 
And I often think about, you know, how blessed the adopted kid is and hearing you talk about it. Yeah, it's making your life so much richer and in some ways more complicated, but more complicated. And again, with a richness and a deeper understanding of the human condition and trying to find your place in the world, which is, I think, what we're all searching for, how having your sons in your life has helped you and Jamie in that regard as well. And frankly, it's a little uplifting to hear not being in the South and having grown up in the South, but not now living in the South. It's easy for me to fall into stereotypes and tropes about what it must be like down there. And for me to hear that you feel that your family is being accepted and that you're finding a place that you can fit in and that you're feeling comfortable is really encouraging. And of course, the fact that you and Jamie kind of reached in the world and tried to do some good in a very expensive way. I mean, this is a very committal, like taking on a child is a very committal act, obviously. So it's incredibly inspirational that you guys are out there trying to do positive change, which you know is a theme throughout your life and your career, I think. Yeah, it's why it's so much fun making the show with you and getting to see you every week and being part of the journey for a while with you. Yeah, well, it's a treat for me too to hang out with y'all on a regular basis. Thank you for sharing your story with us. My pleasure. Reconsidering is created by Meredith Black Brandt. Bob Baxley, and Aaron Walter, with editing help from Brian Paik of Pacific Audio. Original music for the show was written and performed by Kimo Meraki. You'll find a full transcript of this episode and all the links mentioned at reconsidering.org. If you've enjoyed the episode, hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player. And if you'd like to support what we're doing, we'd be grateful if you'd leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. It'll help others discover the show. Until next time, remember life like the seasons is ever-changing, but satisfaction can be found every day when we tune in.